the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 and reading again at the beginning we're going to look at verses 1 to 15 of Luke chapter 4 and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil looking at uh, encounters with Jesus and up to now we've looked at certain human beings certain individuals male and female that have come uh, in the gospel and uh, came to meet with Jesus and whose lives were changed uh, in some way or other by meeting with Jesus but tonight we're looking at another being not a human being but at the devil in his encounter with Christ this is not fiction some of the young folks here perhaps are well used to Marvel comics Marvel books where superheroes are followed in a way that their stories develop and films made out of it they're not real but this is this is not fiction this is not a tale or a comic strip about superheroes if this were to be fiction our salvation would fall to pieces because one of the main things for which Jesus came into the world was to destroy the works of the devil to tie him up in his uh, abilities and to destroy and vandalize his kingdom so this is very much real in fact it's a cosmic struggle a cosmic conflict clash between the head of the evil empire and Jesus the son of God our savior and it's so important that we understand what's taking place here what took place in this event in the wilderness because as we say it has a very direct bearing on our salvation and there are many aspects to this passage that bear upon our own lives and the temptations that we face as well. Well, let's look first of all at some connections in the passage, some connections with the Old Testament and connection also with the Holy Spirit because that's mentioned uh, not only in this one here but in the surrounding passages as well. Um, the Holy Spirit features very largely in these verses so we'll look at the connection with Adam and also with the Holy Spirit and then more fully we'll look at Satan's strategy and Christ's success Satan's strategy and Christ's success as we find that in the three temptations with which he came before the Lord or attacked the Lord not that these were the only Temptations. We read that he was tempted there uh, for more than these three occasions and indeed that the temptations didn't stop even though this particular one was over um, uh, when the devil departed from him. You notice he left him, he departed from him until an opportune time. So there were other times in the life of Jesus that he faced attacks directly from the devil. The connection with Adam and the Holy Spirit. Now if you look at verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, you can see there that 
the voice that came from heaven said, You are my beloved son. This is the voice of God. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then verse 3, the first temptation mentioned by, of the devil is said, If you are the son of God, command that this stone be made bread. And then go to verse 39 of the same chapter and you'll see uh, there he stood over uh, and rebuked the favor and then all the way down through as you follow that when you come to verse 41 uh, those who had diseases and were healed demons it says came out of many crying you are the son of God so you find a reference there to Jesus being the son of God in different places the voice that came from heaven the temptation of the devil the demons when he cast them out you are the son of God so the Son of God is obviously a feature of these passages. And in Luke's mind that was important. This is in fact none other than God himself in the person of Jesus. The Son of God has become one of us. has become human as the previous chapters to this uh, tell us. But if you also look at verse 38 in chapter 3. You can see as we read through that genealogy of Jesus that it finishes, verse 38 takes us right back from uh, Joseph where it began the husband of, of Mary, right through to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the son of God why is Adam mentioned there and why is he mentioned as the son of God, alongside of these other references to Jesus being the son of God what is the meaning of that? Why is this particularly mentioned here, this genealogy that takes it back to Adam and mentioning him as the son of God? Well, for one reason, because Adam, as representing the whole of the human race at the time, was tempted by this same devil. And he failed in that test because the devil actually won over him. And as, as, uh, as Adam capitulated or gave in to the devil and took the forbidden fruit that God had commanded him not to eat of him, not only did he fall from that state of righteousness and holiness and communion with God, but all of those of his descendants that were descending from him as the catechism says by ordinary generation, that excludes Jesus' humanity, they, they sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Why are we sinners? Because we sinned in Adam. And because God then applied, as he promised, the curse of death to us as human beings. So where Adam actually failed, what you find here is Jesus, the last Adam, sometimes mentioned as the second Adam, but the New Testament calls him the last Adam. And where the first Adam failed in giving way to the devil's temptations, the last Adam stood and did not, uh, did not fail, but not, not only resisted but overcame the devil's temptations for our salvation. Jesus, the Son of God, as the last Adam. And that's why when you go, um, we're not going to spend too much on this, but I want to just try and tie a few things together because it is very important, these two heads, if you like, the head of the human race that Adam was when he was created and the head of God's saved people who is the last Adam, who is Jesus. When you go to Romans chapter 5, I'm not going to read it just now, but when you go through it, as you know, you'll know yourselves what it's about, that it compares the two, Adam and the last Adam, Jesus, 
and that how through the disobedience of the first Adam, the many were made sinners. And how in reversing that, through the obedience of the last Adam, the many were made righteous. In other words, the two lines are contrasted there, and the two events are set side by side. The disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus. We came under God's curse through the first one. We come into God's salvation through the second one. Through faith in Christ, we're brought into the salvation that he himself obtained for us. And part of the way by which he obtained it was by destroying the works of the devil, by overcoming the devil, by overcoming his temptations. Now we said also that the Holy Spirit is, uh, is uh, referred to um, in these passages as well. And that's important because it's always important to take a bit of theology with us. I want to try and uh, really increasingly try and get us into the habit of, uh, if, if we've not been in the habit of this, for young folks especially who think maybe that theology is just for the older Christians and it's something that's really maybe just for experts who have been uh, thinking about things in the Bible for a long time. Well, you can't really progress in your life, even the practical things of your Christian life, without some theology, without some uh, knowledge of the teaching of the Bible and the theological the doctrines of the Bible. And what you find here is the Holy Spirit is mentioned a number of times. We'll see why that is, I hope, just by looking at them. If you go to verse 22 again of chapter 3, you see the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Just immediately after he'd been baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then you go to chapter one, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then finally, you have to go to verses 14 and verse 18 there as well. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And in verse 18, you find him coming as he's there in the synagogue at Nazareth. He found this scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And where did he actually read from? Well, from we have what we have in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why is all that important? Because Jesus, when he came into this world, when the Son of God came into this world, he needed to live as a servant. He needed to live in dependence upon the word of his Father. He needed to live, in fact, by the word of God that was written in the Old Testament. That is what Jesus actually referred to, as we'll see, when he answered the devil these three times. He answered the devil out of the Bible. He found his answer in the scriptures. And when you find the Holy Spirit actually here referred to, you can see here that before uh, his testing, he was uh, endowed by the Spirit. The Spirit came on him. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being then full of the Holy Spirit. When he came back from the wilderness, having defeated the devil, having stood against the devil, he returned in verse 14 in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And Luke is really interested and concerned to really put across this point to us that Jesus had the Holy Spirit 
so that as a servant, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that he met the devil. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit that he actually overcame the devil. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit that he came into Galilee and began to preach about himself and about the salvation of God and the kingdom of God. You see, when Jesus, uh, as God, came to be a servant in this world, if he had just taken his own divine power and exercised his own divine power, he would no longer have been a servant. He would have been God just exercising his divine power and not dependent on anyone else. But he had to be dependent, living the life of a servant as the way by which we would be saved. And that's what you find in this passage in the references to the Holy Spirit. Um, in uh, the way that he actually answered the devil, as we'll see, and in the way that he um, went about all the difficult aspects of his ministry and of being a servant, the servant of God. He actually was upheld by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than just borrow, if you like, from his own divine nature and therefore exercise the power of God himself, himself as the person of the second son, of the second person of God, the son of God. Now I know that's very deep and very um, complicated, maybe theology, but it's important for us that we realize our salvation came from God. And it came from God, as he's described in the Bible, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as the salvation that we enjoy and come to possess came from God, it's important that as far as possible we understand something of how these three persons that make up the one God were active in procuring our salvation for us. The Father sent the Son into the world to be his servant. The Son came into the world willingly as the servant of the Father and as the Savior of his people to bear their sins, to die their death, to rise from the dead, to go back to glory. And all the way through that life of being a servant, he lived upon the Word of God. He depended upon the Holy Spirit. He was empowered in his humanity by the Spirit of God so as to meet with the demands of his journey. Let's just leave it there. And it's only then, you see, that he took the scroll of Isaiah after he had been endowed by the Spirit coming down onto him, after he had actually uh, uh, then come back in the, in the fullness of the Spirit, after he had overcome the devil, it is only then that he takes the scroll of Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He can then take Isaiah and say, this is now a reality, and I have proved it by what's just happened in the wilderness. What a an amazing salvation we have. What an amazing Savior we have. What a wonderful God we have. How wonderful that He's shared this with us. That He's lifted the curtain, as it were, into these spiritual, unseen realms and told us of these various facets of the Savior's journey to be our Savior. And that this is all involved. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and Jesus in our nature, Jesus human as well as divine, 
as our Redeemer. Well, then, then let's look at Satan's strategy. Strategy here is here is Jesus, the Son of God, now full of the Holy Spirit, and he's in the wilderness. He's uh, been here for forty days, it says, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, it's important that in order to actually get to the strategy of Satan, to know what was in Satan's aim and in Satan's purpose and in Satan's mind, you don't look to the words of Satan himself. Because he's very crafty. And he hides his real purpose in the way, even as we'll see as he uses scripture. You find Satan's strategy in the answers of Jesus. He knew him. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was trying to do. And so he answers him accordingly. And when you ask the question, what was the devil trying to do here? You go to Christ's answers. You see from Christ's answers what his strategy was and how Jesus successfully overcame them. Well, here's the first attack. If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, in this attack, the devil is not trying to suggest to Jesus that maybe he's not the Son of God. He knows that that's not going to be very successful because he knows very well that Christ is fully aware of who he is, that he's aware of his own identity as the Son of God. That's not what he's about. What he's about is trying to divert Jesus from the path that he's on as the servant of the Father. What he's really saying to him is, if you're the Son of God, really, as the Son of God, why are you in these conditions? Why are you now suffering hunger? Surely as the Son of God, there should be something better for you than that. Surely the Son of God shouldn't be in a wilderness. Surely the Son of God shouldn't be subject to hunger. Surely the Son of God shouldn't be in a place where he's got to look for bread and he doesn't find any. Command this stone that it be made bread. Would that not be more in keeping with your status as the Son of God? That you could actually use your power, your own power as the Son of God and change that stone and make it into bread and then stop this hunger. See what he was at. And Jesus knew that's what he was at. And the moment Jesus, I know we're speaking in a certain way to try and clarify things and not suggesting that Jesus for one moment thought about doing this. But had he done so, he would no longer have been the servant of the Father. He'd have been the servant of the devil. And that would have been it as far as our salvation was concerned. That's why he answered him in the way that he did. Jesus said to him, Man, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now it's interesting, first of all, that he answered him from Scripture. He answered him from what was already written in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy in this particular attack. In Deuteronomy and uh, uh, chapter 8 and verses 2 to 3. And what you find there is uh, a reference to the people of Israel and where the people of Israel were grumbling against God that they were... Uh, in this wilderness, that they'd been taken out into this wilderness to die, that they had no 
food that they had no access to, water, all of these grumblings that you read there in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is actually reminding the people. Remember that the book of Deuteronomy was, uh, was uh, much of it was just spoken to Israel before they were about to enter the promised land, 40 years after they had left Egypt. But it was a reminder to them of their history. It was teaching them of how the Lord had dealt with them and it was teaching them and reminding them that even despite their own unfaithfulness and despite their grumblings, God had brought them through the wilderness and they were on the borders of the promised land. And here was Moses uh, reminding them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that uh, they had indeed been hungry. If I can read the verses to you, um, you can get the, the context and the way in which Jesus so um, importantly went to that context to answer the devil. Because it's in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 3. Here is what uh, Moses said to the people. Um, Remember, you shall be careful to do the whole commandment that I command you to do today, that you may live and, be mul- and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There is where Jesus found his answer. And however clever the devil was, and however much he was hiding his real purpose, Jesus saw through it. He went to a context where Israel had failed, where they had grumbled against God, where they had demanded food and at other times water. And here is Jesus in the same situation in the wilderness, without food. But instead of grumbling and taking in the words of the devil and doing as he's saying, he goes to the word of Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. See, there's 40 years, a lot of it grumbling against God in the desert years of Israel. There's a correspondence here in the 40 days in which Jesus was in the wilderness here. All of these connections are so important. Not just with Adam and the role of the Holy Spirit, but the connection with the 40 years of grumbling and failure on the part of Israel. And here is the Son of God. Here is Jesus answering the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And Matthew captures that by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now you see, that's what the devil will try and make you and me do as well. When he will actually come and suggest to you that somehow God's way is not the best way for you. That there are so many difficulties in being a Christian. There are so many things to overcome in being a Christian. And that if you're really a Christian, God would not have left you to the situation you're in where you've got all of these difficulties and these challenges. 
and all of the, this failure that you know in your own life and I know in my life, surely that really is saying to you, along with the other things that you're worried about and uh, see in your life, that you're not a Christian. Well, here is your answer to him. Go to Scripture and tell the devil, man shall not live by bread. I'm not living for my material things. That's what Jesus said to the disciples. Matthew chapter 6. Let your heart be in heaven. Let your treasure be in heaven. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's the first attack. Let's move on to the second one. Verse 5, he came. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What he was saying there was partly true. And that's one of the things that we always, um, we always uh, associate with the devil, that he doesn't tell us the whole truth. And even when he uses the truth, he doesn't use it in the way that he should. He leaves out certain important emphases. And not only that, but he mixes a lot of untruth with it. And that comes into the bad teaching that you find throughout the world where uh, so much is mixed with the pure gospel of Christ. Where is that from? It's from the devil. It's from the one who wants people to depart from a path of obedience to God and follow their own ideas and follow their own ways. Well, remember Ephesians chapter 2, where you find there, you were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There he is saying that the devil had a certain sway over the nations of the world and held them in this grip in which they were blinded and darkened and not uh, at all seeing salvation as it came to be seen ultimately in Christ and preached by, by the apostles in the gospel. What Satan is saying here, this has been given to me. I have all these nations under my sway. They're in darkness. They don't know the gospel. They're pagans. They, they, they worship all kinds of gods. They get up to all kinds of grotesque things thinking they're serving their gods. But you know, I will give you the authority and the glory of these kingdoms. All you've got to do is just fall down and worship me. And it'll all be yours. Well, we'll see from the next one that the devil knew his scripture. And I think almost certainly he knew Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2, as you know, is a psalm that you regard as a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Savior. And in that psalm, it speaks about God anointing his king and setting him on Zion, his holy hill. Despite all the cavils and the attacks of uh, uh, those who are uh, attacking the Lord and his people and, and his Savior, his King. And you remember the psalm goes on and it, it's, as, it's God there speaking to the Lord and saying, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The promise was made to the Savior that after he had finished his work on earth and gone back and taken his seat at the right hand of God, he would then be installed by that 
as the governor of all the nations, the president par excellence of all the universe. And what Satan is saying to him, you can still have that, but you don't need to go through the cross to it. You don't need to actually go towards it by just going to this death, this suffering that you're now in, that is going to be yours uh, uh, from now on as well until um, it's done. Why should you actually suffer this deprivation? Um, Why should you suffer all that's in your life as a servant? Why should you actually suffer death? Why should you go through with all of these things? Why bother with all this servitude? You can go around them. You can bypass them. There's a by-road. I've got control of it. All that you've got to do is fall down and worship me. It'll all be yours. You know that voice, don't you? You know that voice that says to you, you don't need the struggles that are in the Christian life. You can get to heaven some other way. There's an easier way. There's a way by which you can actually avoid the sufferings of standing against temptation, of living a righteous life contrary to all that you see around you that's filled with ungodliness. You don't have to actually resist the worldliness that you see around you. You can just be part of that. And at the end of the day, really, you can still work your way through and you'll end up in heaven at last. That's the voice of the devil. That's the temptation with which he tempted Jesus. Take a shortcut. Bypass the difficulties. Avoid the temptations. Just serve me. Look at how good your life will be. Well, millions of people have fallen for that lie over the course of history. Don't you follow them. Don't you be one of them. Don't you listen to the voice that tells you there's a better way than the way that's in Jesus Christ. There's a better way than following him. There's a better way than repenting of your sin and coming to know the salvation of God through his forgiveness. There's a better way than actually having to resist evil and to resist unrighteousness and to be obedient to Christ. There's a better way than obedience to God. Don't listen to all of that. It's lies. It's from the pit where the devil belongs to. And if he offered Jesus a shortcut to dominion over the kingdoms, you can be sure he's going to offer you a shortcut to heaven instead of the way that Jesus, that God himself sets out for you in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Lord answers him again. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall save. You shall save. That's going to Deuteronomy uh, again in chapter 8 and verse 3. You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you save. You see, he's putting himself again. He's, he's stating clearly, I'm here as a servant. I'm here to honor the Father. I'm here to be obedient to his will. I know it's a staggering thing that Jesus in our nature worshipped the son of God as a human being was honouring the father you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve and you see 
He's also tying together two very, uh, very importantly two things there for us. Serving the Lord and worshipping the Lord. You can't detach them. You can't say it's enough for me to be a Christian if I just come to church. And if my service is just confined to my worship. That's not what is, is uh, tied together here by the Lord at all. He's saying uh, only the, the Lord alone. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. You shall serve. You can't really detach the idea of serving, the practice of serving, of being a Christian practically from the worship with which you worship God. You could put it this way, that our worship is a serving worship. And our serving is a worshipful serving, a devotional service. You can't separate the two. It's the second attack. And as I said, that's something that you will know of yourself in the temptation to avoid what the Bible tells you is part of the Christian life. Thirdly, he comes and uh, he says, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And again, it's written on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. The devil knows his Bible. Why do you and I need to know our Bible? Well, there are many reasons, many ways in which you could answer that. But one very important way of answering it is because the devil knows it very well. And unless I know my Bible at least as well as the devil, I've got a problem. I'm going to be in trouble when he comes to me with the Bible and says, look, have you not seen this? Is this not true? And if you follow this out, what can happen to you? What's going to be, what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it, as Jesus says in the answer is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. For him to have thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, expecting that God would actually prevent him being hurt, may well have happened. But he had no warrant then to expect it to happen because he would have been departing from obedience to the word of God. In other words, he would have just have been experimenting with God, playing with God, not treating God seriously. And if there's one thing, young folks here, I would say to you tonight, please take God seriously. Don't trivialize God. Don't treat God the way that maybe some of your own companions in school or wherever will act, are actually treating him. Don't take his name and just throw it around as a swear word. Don't treat anything to do with God as if it's trivial, as if it's something that really isn't very important. Because here is Jesus. And he's saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If God has said, this is something you should not do, you must not do, And don't expect his protection if you set out to do it. That's really trivializing and calling God to just conduct an experiment and see how true he is or isn't. And Jesus answered him in that way from Deuteronomy again in verse 6, interestingly, uh, where uh, Israel, um, Deuteronomy 6 reminds them of 
than being at Massa, where they complained about there being no water. In other words, what this is really saying is, instead of putting the Lord to the test, you shall live by faith. You shall accept his word. You can follow his word. You can treat his word as absolutely dependable. You will not go your own way. You will not put something else instead or above his word. It's all built into the answer that Jesus gives to the devil here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now then, you take these three answers of Jesus in response to these three attacks by the devil, and what do you see? You see a devil who hides his real purpose behind the words that he uses in his temptations. You see a devil who has it in mind to divert you from the way of obedience to God. You see a devil who wants to harm you by actually um, by uh, drawing a veil, as it were, over the truth and suggesting to you that actually it's a much better world that he offers you than the world that Jesus sets before you. And you can see the way Jesus answered him. And you can follow these answers for yourself daily too. Let me go back to what I said at the beginning. This is not fiction. This is part of everyday life for a Christian. Not suggesting that there will be strong temptations like this every day as there was here in the experience of Jesus. Not suggesting that you'll actually hear literally a voice in your ear telling you to do one thing or the other. But I am saying that this is always Satan's strategy that you are to look out for in all the experiences of life, in all the ways in which you are tested as to whether you are going to be obedient to God or not, just as Israel were. Remember, there is always the devil somewhere or other lurking around and his purpose is that you will fail and fall. See, the question here, all the way through these three tests, these three attacks, the question is, and you actually wonder, you know, when, um, especially with the second one here, where the devil is saying, all of this I will give you, these kingdoms of the world, all you need to do is fall down and worship me, and they'll be yours. Um, did the angels, did they actually draw a breath then? Did they actually just hold their breath and wonder what was going to happen next? And was, there, was there a sense of relief even among the angelic hosts when Jesus answered the devil in a way that showed, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go through with what I came to do. And for you and for me too, spiritual strength is something that increases the more we keep resisting and overcoming temptations to be disobedient to God. That's how you grow stronger in your Christian faith, in your Christian life. The more we capitulate, the more times we give in, the more our strength is sapped, the more we follow Jesus in what he's saying, the more we can truly say that God will lend us increasing strength and increasing knowledge of the way 
but follows Christ the Savior. May God bless these thoughts to us this evening. We're going to finish our service tonight singing in Psalm 91 again. Psalm number 91, this time in the Scottish Psalter version, page 351. Tunis Spor, verses 1 to 4. He that doth in the secret place of the Most High reside under the shade of him that is the Almighty shall abide. Psalm 91, verses 1 to 4, to God's praise. He that Allow me to get to the main door, please, after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.